But John chapter one, beginning in verse 14, the final paragraph of his opening prologue. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Let's pray. And so that final uh, phrase there, he has revealed him, is our prayer today. Uh, Jesus, would you reveal yourself to us, and in doing so, reveal us to the Father. Um, And Holy Spirit, may that revelation come not simply as something that happens in our minds, but a word that you speak to our hearts. And so speak. God, we're, we're, we're seeking to see the one that we haven't. So help us. Amen. You can be seated. There is a um, daily chaos storm that erupts into our home that, that most families call bedtime. Um, we know it as uh, the chaos hour. Um, trying to get our seven and our three-year-old into bed is an absolute insanity fest. And I don't understand it because when we have like some of you, friends of ours, who will sit for us, you know, um, come watch the kids and, and you have to put them down, they become different children. I, I don't understand it. They become like from like the sound of music, like so long, farewell. And they like go to bed and they're like, thanks for coming over. They get a British accent. We'll see you, see you tomorrow. And they like, you know, bundle themselves up. And then when we're putting our own kids down, it's World War III. There's projectiles, there's screaming, like it's, it's, it's awful. And, and a couple of weeks back, uh, in the midst of all of that chaos, as it was beginning to slowly still, um, Aaron was beginning to pray with Emma and Arlo before bedtime. And Emma, our now seven-year-old, um, just the prospect of, of the idea of, of praying before bed begins to start getting really emotional, starts crying. Like, what in the world, Emma, what's going on? Like, to the point where she, you know, can't talk through it. What in the world is going on? So Aaron's there. Aaron's laughing because, of course, these are the things that happen when I'm not there. Um, I think I was, I had some pastor's event or something like that. I wasn't there. I think it was a prayer night is what it was. And so Aaron's trying to put Emma, what's going on? And walking through all this with her. And she starts crying. What's going on? I don't know if I believe in God. I was just like, oh, wow. That's a big one, right? And she's like, because I haven't seen him, and like I don't, so I don't know if I like. What do I right? And so Aaron it, like, masterfully handles that. But so all that says, is, Emma is a seven-year-old. She's been up to this point in her life has been. What did I say? Did someone say something? I'm so sorry. Rachel's correcting me. It's okay. I'm sorry. What Emma? That we're getting there. <laughs> That's what the next forty-five minutes or so. <laughs> Just, no, so Emma is a seven-year-old. I love Rachel so much. Uh, Emma, as, Emma as a seven-year-old is moving from, like there's a very real thing that any kid that's been raised in like a Christian home has experienced, which is very early on your experience, uh, you're like a spectator to the faith, kind of invited along with mom and dad, but very much kind of sitting on the sidelines. And Emma, as she's stepping into kind of this faith, beginning to be something of her own, she has her own doubts and her own questions. Um, it is part of the spiritual journey. And so the first thing that we told Emma was that 
that following Jesus is never absent of questions and doubts, like that this is an okay thing to be feeling. But we began to process through with her that over the course of these weeks, these multiple conversations, even just a couple nights ago at the dinner table where, you know, as we're talking about it a little bit more, Emma's just like, yeah, but I would just love to have a picture of God. Like, wow, yeah, okay, yeah, me, you know, me too. And so we're just processing through all this stuff together. But it, it's, it's a big question because this is something that um, every, everyone, either at seven or 70, is going to have to do some account with. Like what, what we just read with John, no one has ever seen God. So let me just put it, what separates Jesus from Santa Claus? <laughs> Santa who sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, for, so be good for goodness sake. That sounds kind of like God at first glance, right? He's always watching me, like he's kind of, you know, checking in on stuff. He knows if I'm bad, good. He's got a list. He's checking, right? What separates Jesus from Santa Claus, who might be really helpful in getting your kids to behave through the Christmas, you know, season, and might be able to kind of give some little leverage of morality over someone's life and, you know, brings kind of warm feelings around the season, but ultimately is a fiction. I really hope when I say that, Okay, most of the kids in this room are old enough that you guys should know that by now. And if not, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> you guys can talk about that at lunch. So, but, but generally, what separates? You've never, seen, you've never seen Santa. And you've never seen God. What separates them? In John's prologue that we've been going through over the past few weeks, we've been looking at um, John's unique perspective that he brings to the Christmas story. Whereas Matthew and Luke, and they're kind of, you know, they get all the attention at this time of year. They tell the story with the, the events of Christmas. Mary, Moses, shepherds, wise men, right? John, as we've been looking at his prologue, isn't so concerned with the events of Christmas, but the meaning of Christmas, with the meaning of Jesus. What's going on in the manger? What's going on as Mary is giving birth to Jesus? What's going, what's the meaning of that for us? And that is what he's been detailing throughout this prologue. And so in the closing paragraph that we're gonna look at today, I would just say, to very simply, hopefully break this down, is that John lays out for us kind of a three-part meaning of Christmas, and he doesn't bury the lead. It's the opening words in verse 14. Christmas means, one, the word became flesh, two, and dwelt among us, three, and we've observed his glory. Big words, dwelt, flesh, word, what in the world's going on, glory. So today, very simply, to end the year, to, to set us into Christmas, I just want to look at each of these phrases and what they mean and what they mean specifically, not just for Christmas, but for ourselves. So we begin just with that first two words, the word, the word of God. What does it mean to talk to, to, about the word of God? Um, I spend all week long walking up and down the streets of Culver City. Um, we live around there. My daughter's school is over there. Um, we have in the downtown kind of area, I'm a school, work, the coffee shop that I'm always working at, which has become kind of like collectives offices over this kind of past quarter or so. And so I'm just always up and down the streets. I'm at Shake Shack. I'm like just, you know, everywhere. Trader Joe's walking the aisles. And I see on a weekly basis all kinds of people, oftentimes many of the same people. And, and I can gather a lot of details about those people based off, you know, walking around Trader Joe's, taking a peek into their cart. And you're like, okay, you're one of those people. Like, right, and you keep going, right? Like, that, that much wine, huh? Like, you ever had that experience of like, either there's a party going on here and that's all you're buying is just like, no, that's just me, all right. Um, or like, okay, maybe they're, they're, you know, okay, vegan, I see the tofu here. I see, you know, you know be, may be well with you. And you keep going, right? 
Um, or you're walking down the street and you can, you, can, you can guess a lot of things about someone based off the clothes that they wear. Okay, you know, you're looking at, okay, I can see. One of the things that I've really enjoyed is I have a, in my head a meter of how important someone thinks they are, not how they are, how think they are, and it's how loud they talk on the phone in public. You just go to a coffee shop and like, well, you tell them, you're like, oh, I see. Like, no one ever talks that way unless they think that what they're talking about is very important, and it's normally not. Um, so I can gather all this, and there's, there's a word for all of these things. I do it at Disneyland whenever we go. I do it at the coffee shop. I do it while I'm walking around. It's called people watching. It's, a, it's one of my, my hobbies, right? I love people watching, trying to figure out who people are by all these little behaviors and things that they do. But, but here's the reality. As many of those people that I see on a, on a very regular basis, lots of data points even about what I can assume about them. I, if you ask me, do you know the guy who every single morning is writing at Go Get Him Tiger with like this like, you know, fountain pen ink, beautiful handwriting? I don't know his name. I don't know anything about his story. If you ask me if I know him, I would say no. All these people that I walk by on a regular basis, if you ask me, do I know them, I would say no. Now, why is this? Well, one is because I'm an introvert. <laughs> but two, the more important one is, the second one is, because I haven't talked to them. You see, a person's word is their ultimate self-disclosure. We have sayings or things like um, that actions speak louder than words. And, and we're just putting that to rest. Actions speak louder than words alone. Or actions, because... No, all actions require some level of interpretation, but it's someone's words that allow you then to interpret their behavior, their actions as being good or bad. I, this is the, the first thing that came to mind when I was thinking about this is something that none of us experience, but it's about mowing your yard. So just imagine you have a yard. I know this is a lot of fiction, a lot of imagination for us, Angelina, but just imagine, imagine you have a yard, okay? And uh, you're sitting on the couch and you're watching, you know, the movie or something like that in the afternoon and you hear the lawnmower going and you look out the window and you find your neighbor mowing your yard. That's, that is an action that has very many different interpretations. This could be passive aggressive. This, he could think I have not mowed my yard, that my grass is too tall and this is his passive aggressive going after me. Or he may just, want to be, just be a really good neighbor and just wants to like, celebrate, right? right? Or he might have lost his mind and he thinks he lives in my house and we're gonna have an awkward conversation later when he comes in to take a shower. Like these, right? An action that requires interpretation. Word, what you speak, what someone says about themselves is the ultimate disclosure. Behavior has to be interpreted and the words, what someone says about themselves is the ultimate final self-disclosure of the person. Now to bring it back to John, what we have happening here is as we find in verse 17 that the word is identified as Jesus Christ, what this means is that Jesus is the final, ultimate, clearest self-disclosure of who God is. That you can't know God apart from Jesus. Like people watching, you can go God watching. You can take in certain aspects of creation and nature and gather certain ideas about who God might be talking to other different religious backgrounds, and you might be able to gather some wisdom or some interpretation of what God might be up to. But what's happening here is that Jesus is, is it. As verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, the one and only Son of the Father, he has revealed him. Now, this is dramatically different than any other religion. Just to th think about this for a moment, because every other religion, what you'll have kind of their like, you know, main claim to fame character 
whoever their person is at the center of the religious system, will make claims like, um, I know the truth. I have received a revelation from God. I have gotten or found or dug up out of the ground and found these cool little metal tablets that have given me a word from God. That was a deep cut for some of you, and you're here with me. I have received some kind of word from God. Just notice what's happening here with Jesus as he's introduced, is Jesus doesn't come saying, I have a word from God. Jesus doesn't come saying, I have a revelation from God. I have wisdom or truth about God. From the beginning, John is arguing that what Jesus claims about himself is not to have a word from God, but to be the word of God. Not to give you some revelation about God, but to be that very revelation. This is a claim that is rooted in, well, it would be crazy. It would be insane if his identity wasn't up to the task. And so this is why John twice for us, both in verse 14 and again in verse 18, look with me. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory as what? The one and only son from the father. Oh, that's how he's able to make this argument for himself. Again, in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only son who is himself God and is at the father's side. One side note that I love here is side can be translated as in the Father's heart. And it's like, not side sitting here, it's, it's sitting here. So some translations put it, who is in the Father's lap. Like a, like a son sitting in his Father's lap. So how is Jesus able to be the word of God? Because he is God. He's not claiming just to have seen God, he's claiming to be him and is sharing the experience and the life as one who is both with God and is God from the beginning. And this is an identity that Jesus doesn't just claim for himself. John the Baptist does. We have that one little line where we get a quote from John the Baptist in verse 15. John testified concerning Jesus, the word, and he said, this was the one, Jesus is the one of whom I said, the one coming after me, my, my successor, ranks ahead of me, my superior, because he has, he has existed before me. He's my predecessor. So what John even identifies, the Baptist here, is that Jesus is not another human coming with a word from God or a revelation about God. He is God himself. He is that word. He is that revelation and has been so since before John the Baptist. As the beginning of the prologue said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and all things were, right? This is, this is who we have in Jesus, so, so what this means then is that if Jesus is the revealed word, what this means is that Jesus is Emma's Longford picture of God. Do you want to know what God is like? John is saying, then you look at Jesus. You look at his life. You look at his behaviors. You look at his teachings. You examine his, his resurrection and the, and the historicity of it. This isn't anti-rational. This isn't anti-evidence, but it's looking at what God has said for himself. This is my primary place of evidence of who I am and my existence and what I'm like. It's Jesus on earth. And so questions that you have about God, you bring them to Jesus because he is the one who has revealed him. So do you have questions about how God feels about you in the midst of brokenness or, or family trials? Or you, how does God feel about this? You, you look at Jesus. You study over the Gospels and you find that's what God is like. Jesus is the ultimate self-disclosure of the Father. So there is no other way of finding him and knowing him apart from him. But when we have him, we have the picture that we long for. That's what God's like. So to say Jesus is the word of God 
is first to say that the meaning of Christmas is that you can know God. You can know God. Though no one has ever seen him, you can know God in his son, Jesus Christ. But that's not it. Because John moves from saying not only is it the story of the word who is Jesus, but that the word became flesh. The word became flesh. This is so good. John, in writing this in his original Greek, there's a lot of ways that he could say he became a body. He became a human, right? He became a man. He became a human. He uses this, this kind of, it's kind of crude, crass word. He uses the word meat. The word became meat. This is where we get the doctrine of the incarnation, right? That Jesus, this God, become human. Incarnate, there's the root for like carne asada, right? Meat right there, right? So the word became meat. So with all of John's options, why does he settle for almost kind of a, a really humiliating low view of what it means to be human? Why not? He became soma, you know, the body, right? But, but meat, why is, why is he using such a crass language? One is he's really highlighting the condescension of God and lowering himself down to the human story. But John's main point is that Jesus didn't show up just to come to appear human, to be partially human, to take on the best aspects of your humanity, but not all of the really humbling and kind of low view ones. He didn't just appear and walk out you know, from a dimensional portal into the world. He was born. So this is what's going on within, within Christmas is what? That the word became flesh, was born to Mary. And that the God has revealed himself in a hungry, crying, nursing infant who over the course of his life would grow. If you think about it for a moment that God has gone through puberty, have you really, I mean, brought that in? Acne, that, that God knows what it's like to have morning breath or for your neighbor to have morning breath? That every experience of life in having a body, God himself knows weakness, he's been tired. You just think about all the different things, the acne, like you think through all these different stages of your life, when no, it's not falling. He experienced the highs and the lows of the human life. He's known friendship and betrayal. Jesus in his life has known what it's like uh, to be in obscurity where no one, it seems like, knows his name and where he can't get a moment alone because everyone wants to be with him. He's known death. He's known loss and grief. He's known celebration and joy. The whole gamut of the emotional story, the word Jesus has known. Now, this is, to talk about other religions for a moment, once again, it's, it's the scandal. You don't find anything like this in any other religion. The idea that God would be in diapers, the idea that God, Jesus in his cross, that God would die, God with B.O., a God with bad breath. What, you, what, a, what an awful view of the divine. No other religion has anything like this. It's a scandal, and yet for Christianity, it's our greatest hope. Do you know why? Because God knows. God understands. There's, there's nothing that you have gone through that God can kind of I'm sorry to hear about that. Good luck. But he's able to say, me too. Hebrews chapter two, reflecting on what it means that the word became flesh, talks about how Jesus became like us, humans, in every single way, tempted as we are and like us in all ways, except for succumbing to temptation, so that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest, able to help in our time of need. 
Isaiah chapter 9, when he talks about the coming Messiah, talks about him as the Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and all those come together. We sing this in some songs around this time of year. The Wonderful Counselor, Wonderful Comforter. Why is he able to be a wonderful counselor to you? Because he knows. He's understood it. He's gone through it. Some of you have had a friend, or let's just make, make an illustration. As you get diagnosed with cancer tomorrow, Merry Christmas, and you're sitting home, and you have people that come over, people that love you, and they want to, they want to be with you in that moment. Well-intentioned is all get out. They're bringing over meals. Some of them are talkative, and they really want to talk. What are you thinking, right? And it all well-intentioned is all get out. And then you have the friend who comes over who either at that time or has in the past had not just cancer, but that very same kind of cancer, that same diagnosis. They know, they understand, and they walk through the front door. And what, how much different is that experience? Because they know, because they understand. You all have experienced something like this, maybe not with cancer, but with the loss of a parent or the brokenness of a, of a relationship where the, the bottom has fallen out on your career. And in that moment, you may have lots of well-intentioned people, but the wonderful counselor is the one who says, oh, me too. I know what that's like. I know what that's like. I've been there. And he's able to walk us through, through that. This is what we mean when we say that the word became flesh. Is that there's no, no avenue, no aspect of your life, which, which God, like a, like a Zoom counselor, you know, like just kind of checks in, oh, hey. I was, I was thinking about talking about this, but the difference between... Like, you know, you have a therapist who's on Zoom. You've never met them before, and the whole relationship is built around Zoom. That can be helpful, right? But no, the difference with that, and, you know, I have, I have a spiritual director that we talked, I'm such a gift to talk to him on a monthly basis, uh, named Jim. I want to talk to Jim. Jim's great, because Jim's not just smart. Jim's not just compassionate. Jim's not just old, you know, all really good things you want in, like, a mentor. But, but Jim's great, because here's the, here's the thing. Jim was a pastor in ministry for decades. Jim was a father. Jim was a husband, is a husband. Jim has known the interplay of all of those different things. And so when I talk to him on a monthly basis of like, how are you doing, right? I'm like, this is everything I'm going through. I don't know about this. I'm confused about this. I don't know what to do about this. What's Jim able to say? Oh man, yeah, I remember that. So you keep your eye on this thing. Don't, you know, look, look out for that. But just to have someone look you in the face in the midst of your confusion and your grief and your pain and to go, oh, me too, is the... And so the scandal to every other religion is our greatest hope, that there's nothing that you can go through which God goes, tough luck. So the meaning of Christmas is the word became flesh, that you can know God in Jesus and that in Jesus, God knows you. He continues, though, there's more for us, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Second movement, our second meaning of Christmas is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, John, once again, is writing in Greek. He doesn't write in English. He's writing in Greek. And so there's, there's this really profound little link that he's making here that we just completely skip right over in, in the English language. And similar to that language for flesh, there are a whole bunch of words that John could have used here for the word dwelt, among with us, lived with us, resided with us, took up residence, right, rented, like got, got a place to stay. There's all these different ways that John could say it. And what John does is he takes a word from the Old Testament, takes away from the Greek Old Testament, and he puts it in right here to literally what he says is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, made his tent. What in the world is a tabernacle? What are we talking about? It's like, oh, cool. What does that mean? 
So just step back for a moment. We remember the story of Exodus. We remember Israel being liberated from slavery and Moses and the whole crew are making their way through the wilderness. And, and God gives to Moses blueprints for this tent of meeting this, that then becomes on to be the tabernacle, this place where God's presence is going to dwell, where through his priests, God's blessing is gonna be mediated out to his people. And then through the priests and the sacrificial system, reconciliation and relationship and life will be possible. So the tabernacle is the presence of God being with his people. It is the blessing of God mediating out to his people and the new life and forgiveness being given out towards his people. And so when, when John says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, what he's saying is, is quite really that, that God has, has left the building, that the presence of God is now found not in the Holy of Holies, but, but walking around in the dirty streets of Jerusalem. That the blessing of God is not something that you go to the priest to receive. It's something that's moving out and teaching in the Galilean countryside. That the life and the forgiveness of God is not, not found as coming through in sacrifices that must be offered every other year, you know, in the, all these rhythms of, but that the sacrifice, the forgiveness, the reconciliation, that the life of God is now walking around on the streets, meeting people in the midst of their sin, not waiting for them to pull themselves up, Right? So this is what John is getting at when he says the word became flesh and tabernacled with us is that that place of God's blessing and presence and life has now become a person moving around on the streets. And so this is one of these major themes that if you were to sit down and read John over the next few weeks, you know, over kind of the Christmas break or whatever, you would find this is one of the primary themes that John continues to develop is the tension of Jesus is the new temple and the old temple and the challenges and the difficulties. It's why John, whereas the other gospel writers save Jesus' clearing of the temple for the end of their gospel, John starts his gospel with it. He brings that up as a way to fit the whole story together to say this is what's happening, is that God has come back to build up a new temple because the old one had failed, right? But well, what's going on here as it speaks to Christmas for us today, because that's one way that you can read the gospel now is you're looking for him to be that temple, but what this means for us is John is also laying this little seed that he's going to develop, that in, in Jesus, that the word has become flesh and dwelt among us, that the tabernacle is now moving around through the streets and all that in the life of Jesus. But then through the gift of the Holy Spirit, John's whole point that he's going to develop over his gospel is that that little moving tabernacle moves from being not just a place and not even just a person in Jesus, but now a people who have been filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus. John writes a letter later to a church, the same John that we're reading from right here. First John, uh, chapter four. No one has ever seen God. Just notice, do you see the illusion of what we just read in John one? No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain. We dwell in him and he dwells in us. He has given us his spirit. You can keep this up here for a moment. So just notice that in the John's prologue, he uses that same phrase, no one has ever seen God. Do you remember that? Hopefully, everyone's nodding, so you're with me. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. But as he sets up his gospel, what does he say? The way that we have now seen God, he's been revealed, is in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. John, after the sending of the Holy Spirit, at work within the church, this, what continues in the church today, says, though no one has ever seen God, if we love one another... The tabernacle is, is here. 
And, and his love is made complete, it's perfected within the community. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. This is how we know we are tabernacle people. We know we are a moving little community of the presence, the blessing, and the life. He has given us his spirit. So there's this theme that he's developing that God continues to dwell with his people in the ordinary places of life, in ordinary communities. Not a temple to move to, but communities, like in Jesus, walking around on the sidewalks. Communities moving around in the coffee shops, that every single kitchen, every single dining room, every single restaurant, every single workplace becomes now a place where God's presence, his blessing, and his life can radiate as his people give themselves to others in self-giving love. So God revealed himself in Jesus perfectly, and while imperfectly, he still continues to reveal himself in his people. That's what he's talking about, that it's being made complete in us, is that we are a work in progress where Jesus, where Jesus was the fullness. But all the same, if we want to see God, what 1 John here says is that you see it by looking at Jesus and by looking at his people, which is a very high call for the church, isn't it? Not as consumers, as participants in the revelation of God in the world, mediating and bringing about his blessing and his life and his presence. So the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling with us, his tabernacle. And if I can just, end, you know, not end, but just to, to put a bow on this little piece here, because it's Christmas. Think When you read through the Gospels of Jesus, consider the fact that you've got about three years that are really detailed. 30 years are an ordinary, obscure life. Most of, of God revealing himself was in very, very simple ways, ordinary ways. It was around dinner tables. It was conversations along the way. It was as little retreats up into, the, you know, up into the mountains with the disciples to have conversations. The, the, the primary ways that God dwelt among us was in our ordinary, plain, everyday life. And that that is where in Jesus God chose to dwell. And so as you are hearing the invitation that God wants to dwell with you, the good news is, is that my life's too ordinary. Like, he was a carpenter, stonemason, depending on how you translate it. He's working with his hands in total obscurity for 30 years. And you think that your life is, it's, it's, you know, not whatever enough. The way Eugene Peterson always puts it is that um, what we have in, in this passage is a reminder that there is no place without the potential for holiness. There's no life without the potential for holiness to become a tabernacle place. And as the late Darren Patrick put it, if Jesus was born into a messy manger, he's not afraid to enter into your messy life. And so what it means for him to dwell among us means that your life, as it is right now, mess and all, is precisely the kind of place that God wants to make a tabernacle place, that he wants to make a place where his presence, his blessing, and his life dwells and radiates outward. So the word became flesh. We can know God, and God knows us. He dwelt among us. Your ordinary life is the hot spot, the new holy of holies through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we have observed his glory. What does it mean to observe the glory of God? Just think about that for a moment. If I were to say to observe the glory of Kent, like what, is that, what does that mean? That sounds actually very intimate, first and foremost, uh, which is part of it, right? So there's a level of to observe the, the glory of someone is about intimacy. It's about connection. Glory has this language of actually the weight of someone. 
You ever notice how certain people have a weight when they bring, they bring when they carry into the room? Not the pretend, you know, weight of like them talking loudly on their phone. We use it as gravitas, right? The weight of a person. They walk in the room and there's, oh, there they are. To observe the glory of God is to experience that. Intimacy, connection, it's to get a glimpse into the very heart of the universe. And, and to have that, what John says, is to experience something that Moses longed for but couldn't. Remember again, back to the story of Israel going through the wilderness and up on the mountaintop, Moses prays to God, show me your glory. Let me see you for who you, all you are and who you really are. That's a very good prayer. But what is God's response? No mortal can see me and live. Think about the sun for a moment. That one. Um, that one. Um, is the sun good or bad? It's good. <laughs> Hopefully everyone, it's very, there's some goth people and they're like, bad. Um, <laughs> Seattle, can't wait for you. Um, no, the sun is good. You can't live without the sun. Like there, we, gravitation, all of our, gra what's holding all of us together right now is we're on this little thing that's being held together in its gravity around the, the sun. Very good. Big fan of the sun. Life, light, all of it comes from the sun. You can't look at it for more than a few seconds without permanently damaging your eyes. Even when it gets eclipsed by the moon, we have these boxes with tin foil and all this stuff to look, to get a glimpse of the eclipse happening without it burning our eyes out. And so the, just what, what's happening here is it's almost as if God is saying, if you cannot look at the sun without it damaging your mortal body and yourself, what makes you think you'll be able to look at the creator of the sun and its trillions of brothers and sisters and get away unscathed? No, no mortal can see me and live. And so this is why every single time in the scriptures when someone finds themselves in a vision or in the presence of God, they, they cover their eyes. Woe is, I'm in the wrong place. One of my favorites is Isaiah. It's like he walked in like the women's restroom. He's like, I'm in the wrong place. I'm sorry, like I shouldn't be here. Every single time they get into the presence of God, it overwhelms them to the point where without God doing something in that moment, it, it, would, it would disintegrate them. And so God's gracious concession to Moses' desire and the desire of the people of Israel is what we just talked about a moment ago, to give the blueprints of the tabernacle. Like, like the little box set or the certain kinds of sunglasses that you can wear, to look at the sun when it's being eclipsed, to look directly at it, the, the tabernacle serves as this filter to the glory of God, buffered through the holy of holies, mediated through the intermediaries of the priests, right? Sacrifices and rituals which, which serve as, as a filter between this, this glory of God that if I got a real direct view at, would just poof me, Right? And, and the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is most strongly there, what would happen? One person, one day a year, would go into it. The high priest, and when he did, they would tie a rope and a bell around his ankle, just in case he got in there, bleh, like dropped, and they would wheel him out, right? The presence of God, that, this is what's happening because of our mortality, but also because of our sinfulness of God and this perfect love and our selfishness, that those two, they just, it's a love that consumes, it's a fire, is what the scriptures say. And so this is, just with all of this behind us, God's gracious concession is, I want my people to know me and I wanna dwell with them. And yet, in order to do that, my tabernacle. Mediating through all these, giving buffer so that I can dwell with them without it consuming them. So when we get to John chapter one and he says, we have observed his glory, 
What we're finding now is that in Jesus, what Moses and all of Israel was, was longing to get a peek with, but was terrified the whole time to actually do it, John says that's walking around. He's walking around in the world now, and you can get direct vision and view of the creator God and his character and what he's like without it burning you up, without, without it being judgment and death. You can take a hard look at God and consider him for all that he is without the deep fear that you're gonna, <laughs> your heart is gonna stop. And so rather than the judgment and death, no mortal can see me and live, what happens when we look directly? Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. This is John, just as a quick thing, not being anti, anti the law. He sees it as grace. But what he says when he says that we have received grace upon grace is he's saying the tabernacle, the law, the priests, the sacrifices, that was God's gracious concession. But the wild thing is now we've received grace upon that grace. We are now able to see what Moses longed for, that everything that the temple was mediating in buffered ways, Jesus has now brought in the fullness. And now when we look at it, it is not judgment and death, but as he says, we have all received Grace and truth. See, everybody else, the fear up to that point was if you look at God, it'll, it'll stop your heart. In Jesus, what John is saying, if you look at the glory of God in Jesus, it won't stop your heart. It'll give you a new one. It won't end your life. It'll give you a new one. Grace, to look at Jesus, is now to receive grace and forgiveness and new life and truth, a new way of life, a new way of understanding yourself, a new way of understanding the world. And so this is to, to stare at Jesus. This is the invitation. To have a picture that you look at, that now as you look at it, not only helps you understand, one, that I can now see what God is like. And any question I have about God, all I have to do is look at Jesus. But also now in my prayers, looking at Jesus, I know that there's nothing that I will bring to God in prayer that God will say, tough, he knows me, he's been flesh. And then as I look at my picture of Jesus, you know, you think of like pilots and different people who put those pictures in, in their vocation, their work. You know, the trucker who puts the family picture, right? The pilot who puts it in the cockpit is I now have this picture of Jesus that, that can belong and go with, with whatever my life looks like. The ordinary place of my life is where Jesus wants to dwell with me, where he wants to be with me. And as I observe his glory, what I find happening is that it changes me from the inside out. A deeper grace and a greater truth. And that this is on offer for, as it says in verse 16, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace. Now in the Greek, John says we have all received grace upon grace. This word for all means all. It means everyone. So there's, there's no one in this room or no one that you know for whom this is not a possibility. That they can know God. That you can know God. That God knows them. That God can know you. That your, your life, their life, doesn't have the potential for holiness. And that that grace and truth, which radiates out from the person of Jesus, is not able to absolutely transform. And so what is it, though, that we have received? It's the posture of receiving it. Receiving Jesus as the one in whom we find all these things. 
And so the question naturally comes then, um, that's great, Ryan. Um, I, how do I see Jesus? <laughs> he lived 2,000 years ago, right? Like, okay, cool. All the, thanks, John. You knew Jesus, dude. I, we don't. So how do we see him then? How do we see Jesus? Just three quick ways as we move into the conclusion. One is that's precisely why John wrote his gospel. John is writing his gospel as, at, towards the end of his life where most of his life has been telling the stories about Jesus to the people that he knows. He's been moving around, planting churches, talking about Jesus, telling us the stories that end up in his gospel. And now he's getting to the end of his life and he's the oldest now, the, one of the last remaining apostles, those eyewitnesses of Jesus. And he says, along with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in order for people to continue to see God by seeing Jesus, what we need to do is write these into stories that people can go to for generations after, reflecting on and seeing God as they see Jesus. He says the very same thing in John 20 at the end of his gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that aren't written in this book. Come on, John. Just give a couple more chapters, dude. <laughs> That's at least how I feel. But what? My gospel, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John, and along with that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and with, with them, the Old Testament is the story building up to Jesus, and the rest of the New Testament as the story following out what it means for God to dwell with his people and who Jesus is to them. This is how you now see God, is in and through the scriptures. And so we have the scriptures that are one of the ways that we see God. And then the second one is to go back to 1 John chapter 4. It's one of the primary ways that people now see Jesus is in his church. A community filled with the Spirit, giving themselves with love to one another. And so if you, wanna, if you want to see Jesus, the church is meant to be, yes, it will always be imperfect, but at least a trustworthy revelation of who God is. Not like Jesus and that it's perfect, but one that as we, in those moments where we lean in to self-giving love rather than selfishness, trusting and following the Holy Spirit rather than ourselves, giving ourselves in love for others, those are those moments where, oh, just like Jesus that I'm seeing in the Gospels, I see his spirit at work in his people, and I'm seeing within those coming together that this is what God is like. And then finally, what, what extends out of this then as we believe that the Spirit continues to speak and work, no, never canceling out any of these other things. But, but, but that part of this, last week we talked about being born again, is this inner renewal of the heart of observing the glory, of receiving him. And that comes as we begin to, in light of and in connection to and consistent with what we read in scriptures and what we see within the church, we begin to find our heart in our heart, Jesus speaking to us, where all of that becomes now deeply personal. We begin to know God. We begin to hear and sense that he's speaking to us and leading us. And so the great gift that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit and inspiring the scriptures, is in giving us the scriptures and giving us the church, is as you have questions about, what am I hearing right now? What am I sensing? Is this, is this a Jesus thing or is this the ramen last night? Like, what's going on within my heart? is the scriptures and the church become this avenue of discerning, oh, to learning what Jesus sounds like. You know, for all of like the fear of like, you know, AI voice, people calling, you know, crank calling or whatever, uh, people using AI to sound like Donald Trump or whatever. 
Um, there, there is a unique sense that as we study the scriptures, as we live in community, we begin to hear what Jesus sounds like. And while no one has seen God, we find that Jesus is the one who reveals him. And so learning to discern that is a work that takes time, and yet the invitation of Christmas is that it's possible. That it's possible. Because God's whole desire is that you would know him. He spoke. He gave his word. God's whole desire is that you would know him. And not just know him as an, at a distant savior, but as someone who's been where you've been. God's whole desire is that you would observe his glory. God's whole desire is that he would dwell with you in the life that you have. And so the receptivity that comes is one that says, yes. Jesus, I want to see you so that I might see the Father. So that the life that you have, as John 20 puts it, that the eternal life that you have, life unto the age, overflowing life, might be mine. That in observing your glory, I might find myself. And so, as we close out this year, I would just invite you just to kind of think through those, those three big meanings of Christmas and just what they mean specifically at the end of this year, bringing together the past kind of 365 days or so. And just to contemplate and consider what does it mean that you can know God? What questions do you have at the end of this year about God? What doubts, what concerns, what fears? What does it mean that you can know God? Why, where, how do you want to know him? And just to invite you, what would it look like for you to listen to Jesus for what that looks like and who he is? And what are you going through? Where do you need a wonderful counselor at the end of this year? And so whatever you're going through, what does it look like that Jesus can say me too in the midst of that? That you'll have no prayer that'll just be bouncing around the wall, but one that's met with, oh, I've been there. You broke? Jesus has been broke. You got body odor? Jesus had body odor. You have deodorant too, but Jesus had body <laughs> Have you been betrayed this past year? Jesus was betrayed. Did you have the, the, the floor drop out of you? Jesus, that happened all the time. <clears throat> Expectations of others being put on you that you just feel like you're crashing underneath? It was most of Jesus' ministry. Everybody trying to fit him into a box rather than what God had for him and who he was. Do you feel far from God this year? The insanity of the cross is that God felt that too. And so there's nothing at the end of this year, you may feel, oh, the life that I have. There's nothing that God can't comfort and counsel you in because he's been there. And then going into the next year, all the, you know, where am I gonna live? What's my work gonna be? What's this gonna look like? That God dwelt among us is the invitation that no matter what that looks like, there's no place that doesn't have the potential for holiness. There is no life that God is not pleased to dwell. And so you, going into the next year, you can enter it with peace. That the tabernacle is not bound to a place, but now is found in a person, and that person has made his residence in you. And the insanity that you can observe the glory of God in Jesus. That overpowering, transforming grace and truth glory of a new life in a new way. These sorts of things are available to you. And that's what Christmas is. And so 
Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for a year of reflecting on him. A year of receiving the work of your spirit within our community. God, my deep gratitude is that at the end of 2023, that I can actually say that I know what it's like for you to dwell among us and for us to observe your glory. And so we just end this year with deep gratitude and a longing for you to continue that in the new year. Before moving into that, can we ask one more week, if there's something unique that you wanna do with us today, if there's a word that you wanna speak, comfort that you have or just another angle level of your glory that you want to reveal to us deeper grace further truth whatever it may be today we just want to say Holy Spirit would you now begin to speak to us would you name for us